0: I'm Karen Lewis, and welcome to Recovery Bites, a show that gets real about recovery, where we welcome voices in the field and voices of experience. Join me for candid interviews with experts in eating disorder and mental health recovery. Listeners can look forward to new perspectives, meaningful conversations, diverse connection, and compelling personal narratives that make a powerful difference in how we live. Episodes focus on life beyond recovery, the good and the not so good, the successes and the challenges, and the authentic accounts of recovered lives. Not their whole story, just bites. All right, everyone, here we go. This is an incredible episode. My guest for today is Dr. Melissa Fabello. We talk about sexuality, sensuality, and skin hunger. This is an incredible episode that needs no more introduction, so we're just going to jump right in. Let's go. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recovery Bites. Here we go. An incredible episode. My guest for today is Dr. Melissa Fabello. Melissa, welcome to the show.
1: Oh my goodness. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here.
0: I'm so excited for you to be here because we are talking about such an important topic. When we're thinking about our bodies and eating disorders and culture, we're talking about sexuality, Mm -hmm. sensuality, misconceptions about it. Melissa, introduce yourself to the listeners and let's go with this.
1: Yes. I'm so excited. I love this topic. So, okay. So right. My name is Melissa. I have a PhD in human sexuality studies. And what I did my dissertation research on and then published a book about is the way that women with eating disorders and particularly women with anorexia kind of conceptualize their own experience of skin hunger, which we'll get into, but basically is research on the intersection of eating disorders and sexuality from a sexological purview. So a lot of the research on Eating disorders and sexuality is being done by clinical psychologists, which is awesome and um, is missing some perspective because there's not a sex researcher involved. And so from a sex research perspective, looking at that, that same conversation Um, and at this point, like in my life, what I do is I am a relationship coach. So a life coach who specializes in relationships. I call it politicized relationship coaching because I think our relationships are, I mean, our politics come out in our relationships. Our relationships are political. And one of the things that I coach on is um sexuality and eating disorder recovery. So yeah, it's a very, yeah, it's a very exciting topic. That's, I mean, that's mostly me. I, um, There's not much more to say.
0: Well, okay. First of (laughs) all, that in and of itself is enough. And there is a lot more to say. So let me let's start with what got you into this i mean share a little bit about your own experience and how you got to this actual topic and study and and so so we can understand where things are at today like i know i incorporate a lot of my healing my therapeutic work from my own experiences so share a little bit of that
1: totally it's so interesting because i think that what people study what people do for work, if you have a lot of, you know privilege and access to be able to choose that stuff um, and have a lot of options in that realm, often has a lot to do with our own lives and something about us. And um, for me, the topic of sexuality has been really interesting my whole life, gender and sexuality. I think as a woman and as a queer woman my experience with gender and sexuality has obviously been complicated. And particularly I've been interested in how women's sexuality is very much stolen from us before we get to experience it. That I think about, I think the first time I was catcalled, I was like 10 or 11. And that's like prepubescent. I haven't even grown into my own experience of sexuality and already the message is that my sexuality isn't for me. So the the thing about like how do we connect actually to our authentic sexuality when we've never even felt it is <laughs> such a wild thing and I think my whole life that's been very interesting to me and then in my twenties so a little quote unquote late later than normal um, I developed an eating disorder after a relationship with an abusive partner who um, would comment on my body and on my weight. Um, and you know, it's a typical story. It started as a diet spiraled out of control kind of thing. And, um, yeah, so that was my foray into the eating disorder world. And I've had a couple of relapses since then, maybe two, um, and yeah, which then also right, that conversation about how does our sexuality and our relationships and our relationship to our body, how do those things overlap? Um, And so when I went into my PhD program, first, I did a master's of education in human sexuality. And then when I went to do the PhD, I was just really very interested in this conversation about eating disorders and sexuality, because when I looked at the research on it, um, I just kept finding that there was something missing. There was nuance missing on the sexuality end. Um, And I wanted to see what kind of nuance we could add into that conversation. Particularly looking at women with anorexia, tend to have um, a relationship to sexuality that's restrictive, that's very um, avoidant or um, uninterested. Um, And that's great. That's good information to have. But then I started to wonder well, what, what about like cuddling? What about holding hands? What about massage? Like, are those things that this population is interested in? How are we going to help people in their recovery process, you know, or even if they're not in recovery and just helping them in other areas of their lives, for example, are we going to help people with um, eating disorders if we don't really understand the full scope of sexuality? Um, it feels, it feels like a, maybe an important thing to to know. So that's how I got there.
0: So then I'm going to ask you to jump right into the five circles of sexuality, because we can have this conversation, but unless listeners understand how it's broken down, it's a very narrow, a very narrow perception, if that's the right, of what sexuality is, sensuality. So Melissa, let's talk about the five circles.
1: So the five circles of sexuality is a framework or a model for understanding sexuality that was introduced by Dennis Daly in 1981. And what it looks like, and people obviously can Google it, but what it looks like is it's five circles and they're overlapping. They make like a bigger circle, they're overlapping circles. Each of the circles covers a different aspect of sexuality. So often when people think about sexuality, there's kind of a narrow way that we understand it. We understand it as behavior, so who we're having sex with, um, and we understand it as orientation, who we're attracted to. But there's a lot more going on. (laughs) when We're talking about sexuality. So the five circles are um, sexual identity. So that would include um, gender, sexual orientation, um, gender identity, stuff like that. There's sexual health and reproduction. So that is stuff like sexual behavior, it's anatomy and physiology, um, it's conversations about our reproductive systems, abortion, et cetera, would go in there. There's sexualization, which is a, a wide, it's from flirting, which we don't always think of as sexualizing, but it goes from like flirting all the way to sexual violence. Um, but how do we manipulate other people um, in order to meet our sexual needs? So that's sexualization. There's intimacy, um, which often people use as a euphemism for sex, but intimacy is more than that. So um, caring for other people, taking risks with other people, being vulnerable, trust, that stuff falls under intimacy. And then sensuality, which um, includes skin hunger, which is kind of the big conversation, fantasy, body image. um, So stuff that falls into um, our relationship with our body our relationship to other people's bodies and our relationship to our environment so how does sound and smell um and things that we can see like how does that impact our sexual awareness also so those are the five circles
0: and so why do you think I mean I have my own ideas but why do you think society does not see it in to this degree because it is it is all inclusive. It is necessary for vulnerability, sex, intimacy, all of these things to at least identify the circles. Mm -hmm. How did, how did we get so far away from it?
1: I think it's interesting because to me, the five circles, it's one of those things where once you see it, you're like, oh, this is kind of a thing I knew, but didn't have a word or a model for, but yes. Right. Of course. Um, I think Sex is such a taboo topic in our culture. In American culture specifically, it's a really fascinating thing to look at because sex is both everywhere, like we're constantly being used for like advertisement, for example, it's everywhere and yet it's also not something we're supposed to talk about. So it's a very, very complicated and complex experience of growing up in a culture where sex is is two things at once two extremes at once Um, and I think because there's this taboo piece of it where we're not supposed to talk about sexuality we're not supposed to talk about our own experiences with sexuality it's almost like we take it off the table when talking about all of these other things but something like body image body image is a complicated topic and there's a lot that is involved in body image part of that is My own sense of attractiveness. How can we talk about what even mean? What is attractiveness if we're not talking about sexuality? Like, we how do we have a conversation about attraction without having a conversation about sexuality? And it's just we just kind of pretend that part of the conversation isn't there when um, there's no way to 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 get rid of it. It is there.
0: What what is it that you found specifically when you were working with? Forgive me, I was just going to say women with eating disorders, but you worked with transgender, intersex, non But it's interesting because, and this is, you know,
1: depends on how you want to say it, they also had to in some way identify as being women. So it'd be like trans women or non-binary people who also felt attached to the word woman. So it is technically women, but in a bigger, a more inclusive way of
0: thinking about what it means to be a woman, I guess. Right. What did you find when you were, when you were interviewing, researching, doing all this work, the correlation or the, you know, I, I read your book and some of it is like, is it cause or effect or is it both? Like, it's so complicated. Tell, tell the listeners a little bit about what you found about your, from your research.
1: It is really very interesting. And, um, looking at specifically I, you know you have to narrow your research somehow, or else you will be in school for the rest of your life or doing the research for the rest of your life. So I narrowed it by looking at anorexia because the most research is there on anorexia for better for, that's a whole other conversation we can get into about why. Um, but most of the there it's already sex and eating disorder research there's not a lot of it. So um looking at anorexia specifically and also looking at women again, more research there, also my own personal experience. Um, so a little navel gazing also, but um, I, I also tried to kind of broaden what those things meant. So um, anorexia, for example, I included um, atypical anorexia in that definition. I let people self-identify rather than, oh, you have to have some kind of a, you have to take a test for me to see, you know, a questionnaire, if, if you actually fit in to the criteria. Um, and also women, people who were trans, intersex, um, non-binary were could also participate so long as they also felt um, like the word woman described to them. Um, And so looking at, there's just, oh, there's just so much to say. So I very specifically was looking at skin hunger. So skin hunger is our experience of desire for sensual touch. So sensual touch being, any kind of touch that is not explicitly sexual and of course that's going to be different for different people how people understand that for some people a hug might be explicitly sexual and for others it's absolutely not um but generally the examples i gave hugging holding hands cuddling massage um those kinds of sensual experiences your desire for those is skin hunger so it's like when we talk about sex and sex drive we're talking about like sensuality and skin hunger um and so that was specifically what I was looking at, because like I said, in the research, it shows that women with anorexia tend to have low sex drive. So what I was curious about is, well, what is their relationship to skin hunger? Uh, And generally what I found, and this is a small sample size, I interviewed 20 people, but what I found is that people actually were often very interested in sensual experiences, that that was something. And I feel like that's important because... You know, if you're working with someone, let's say in a sex therapy setting, or if you're in a relationship with someone um, who is um, has anorexia or is in recovery from anorexia, it's great to know that these are different ways of touch that might be more um, that they might be more interested in, rather than something that's more explicitly sexual. But that thing about why sensuality and not explicit sexuality—that's where we start going. Well there's a million reasons why that could be right. And when you look at the circles of sexuality, you're like, there's so many things can, can, can impact that. So some of the big ones is avoidant attachment style. So people with anorexia, women with anorexia tend to have avoidant attachment styles um, and people with avoidant attachment styles tend to be um, less committal, less um, intimate, less vulnerable um, as a protective mechanism. Um, There's also the relationship between eating disorders and sexual violence. So there's um, a high kind of correlation between having experienced sexual violence in your life and having an eating disorder, the potential mediating factor being PTSD in the middle. Um, But the experience of sexual violence is a big one. Um, Sexual identity is an interesting one because there's sort of like a myth out there that queer women are kind of protected from eating disorders, um, which is not true. So, and in fact, can be a, that the experience, it's called minority stress, quote unquote, but the experience of being oppressed might actually make you more likely to develop an eating disorder. Trans people have the highest rates of eating disorders out of any gender, um, (laughs) which we don't often think about. Um, and also, for example, the experience of being a trans woman and, um, wanting to quote unquote pass or be seen not as trans in the world, potentially for one's safety. Um, and what body like distribution of body fat has to do with that. I mean, it's, there's so many different ways that these two things overlap. And I think it's, it's very interesting to explore um, and to be curious about how these things, how sexuality is, even for people who are asexual or people who don't um, aren't particularly interested in in sex, like the behavior of sex, sexuality is a huge part of our lives. And so is being in a body, um, and so is food. Like so, like these things, they're such huge parts of being a person that, like, of course, there would be
0: overlap. I don't know why, and this might feel like it's coming out of left field, but you were saying all these things are so part of being a human. Also part of the human experience is being subjected to everything being pathologized. Mm -hmm. And I remember, and again, forgive me if, if I'm not quoting this correctly, but don't you also talk about the fact that like, when people are having trouble with sexuality or intimacy or whatnot, it's like sexual dysfunction. Yes. Mm-hmm. And the word dysfunction, as opposed to being exploring, you know, curious, you know, and, and, and I know that that just totally went off, like from what you were saying, but for some reason I thought about like all these experiences that are human are also ones that are sort of thrusted on us. Like how do yeah. how do we show up in a world where if we, quote unquote, are not doing it right. It's called a dysfunction and a sexual dysfunction. Uh,
1: mm -hmm. I love talking about, I love talking about sexual dysfunction because it's a weird idea. Yeah. Um, So I love that you say this about part of being a human um, is also experiencing um, kind of like what other, what outside forces put on you. And I think that that is particularly true in a society that is um white supremacist and colonial and capitalist and patriarchal and so on and so forth that so much of what it means to live in a society like that is about what what is 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 thrown at you and the ways in which you are oppressed and um which is often not taken into consideration either in these conversations, and sexual dysfunction is a fascinating example of this. Because the concept of sexual dysfunction came up around what we call um, the sexual response cycle. And the sexual response cycle has four um, parts to it. There's arousal, there's plateau, there's orgasm, potentially, um, and resolution. And so (laughs) a lot of what sexual dysfunction, quote unquote, is, is if you have an issue with any of those things. So if you have trouble becoming aroused, um, that is considered sexual dysfunction. If you have trouble orgasming, sexual dysfunction. Um, And what's interesting, I, I, I can't believe I have to say this, even though I'm not like at all surprised by it, the research done on sexual functioning was done on cisgender men. And so inherently, cisgender women or people with vulvas are sexually dysfunctional by definition because the experience that we have in fact there's actually another sexual response cycle like in a different version of it that is specific to quote-unquote women but like people with vulvas so it's just like um it's wild so the idea for example that there's kind of we have this idea that women whatever we mean by that need emotional connection. In order to experience sexual arousal, that is not true across the board. It is true for a lot of women in a way that it is not true for maybe people of other genders, uh, particularly men, that that is an important aspect, which again, in a world where women and other marginalized genders are oppressed, like, yeah, trust, imagine that (laughs) would be a thing that we would wanna feel before we're vulnerable. (laughs) Um, But that is then considered weird or wrong or something that we have to look at as, oh, you know, women and they're like, they need, you know, X, Y, and Z uh, because this other thing is is considered what's normal. And so sexual dysfunction is a very interesting concept. And it's also generally defined, like if you go to a doctor or a therapist and you say, hey, I'm struggling with X, Y, Z sexual dysfunction, the question is going to be, um, are you bothered by it? Because a lot of times people will come and say, my partner is struggling with the fact that I my sex drive is low, for example. And if you are not bothered by it, if you're fine, if it's not causing distress for you personally, it's not dysfunction by definition. So it's it, dysfunction has to be like, you are distressed um, by whatever the experience is. It's So it's just, I don't know, I I think it's a really wild, wild concept. And the idea that particularly within like the context of the medical industrial complex and big pharma, what is a problem that we can fix? Let's create problems. Really, let's create solutions and then create problems that we can sell those solutions for. Um, And often that impacts more marginalized people.
0: It also speaks to, and, and I, I always speak from my own experience, I had no sexual arousal when I was in my eating disorder. And by the way, one of the functions of my eating disorder was I had intimacy fears and, and you know adulting fears. So I didn't want to feel sexual. The thing is, though, is that, let me try to figure out how to say this correctly, Melissa. I feel like we also live in a culture that we always have to blame somebody. And so if you are somebody that's struggling with an eating disorder and you have a low libido, then it is actually blamed on the client for their Mm -hmm. eating disorder. If they didn't have their eating disorder, they wouldn't have a low libido. Like, I don't know where, I don't know why I'm going to this, this place, but I feel like there's always like, if we can blame somebody, then we don't feel so badly about ourselves. And the reality is, is people with eating disorders, at least when I did, I had enough self-criticism. I didn't need any more blame, shame, negative talk. I didn't need anyone. You know, do you know what I'm saying? So I don't even have a a question about that. But these are just some of the things that I'm thinking about as we're having this conversation.
1: And it's interesting too because why aren't we normalizing that people have different experiences? Why do we even have to call it like low like a low sex drive versus a high sex drive? What what is the norm? What are we measuring that against? You know, it's it's odd. And I think that we tend to do that, is we tend to create, uh, particularly within, I think, the realm of research where you have to operationalize ideas. I feel like we create a norm, like a population average, um, but then we measure people against that average. And it's, well, now you have a high sex drive. You have a low sex drive. Um instead of just normalizing that the human experience is varied and that we just are varied and that's it.
0: How was the research process of this? I'm, I'm imagining, you know, you're asking people questions that are very vulnerable. Again, there is a lot of shame attached to sex. There's a lot of shame attached to enjoying sex. Like we were talking about that earlier, you know, what was it like doing the research it, it must have been fascinating and complicated. And what was it like for you?
1: Oh, it was so interesting. I've mostly blocked out this period of my life because it was so horrible doing a PhD. But, um, but now that you're mentioning it, I am remembering some things. So a couple things that struck me while doing the research. One was, I think I had done my first two interviews and they were really short they were over in like 20, 30 minutes. Um, And I was a little concerned about that. And I talked to my uh, advisor about it. And I was like, I don't know what to do. And he said to me, have you tried being yourself? And and I was like, what do you mean? And he was like, are you putting on researcher hat and like trying to be somebody? Or are you just being yourself? And I was like, oh, I'm not at all being myself. so then when I went into it and would you know practice self-disclosure, which is something I ended up writing about in the dissertation, that I found that like this was useful and this was my kind of rationale for doing it, um, and just having a conversation, uh, it flowed much better. So I had set up as qualitative research. I set it up to be semi-structured interviews. The great thing about a semi-structured interview is it's exactly what it sounds like: semi-structured. I have some questions. If we go on a different into a different conversation, that's great. It doesn't matter. Um, and once I leaned into that, um, and just letting it be a conversation, I found that it went much better and that people were much more comfortable when I could say things like, oh yeah, I've had a similar experience, for example. Um, I think too, something that was really interesting was people would bring things up that I just did not anticipate at all, at all. Um, For example, as silly as it sounds, because yeah, duh, like sensuality is about (laughs) like how we experience the world through our five senses, but I just wasn't thinking about it that way necessarily. And I would have clients say things, not clients, I would have interviewees say things like, um, my sense of color was dull when I was in my eating disorder or, um, Yeah. Like my, my sense of, my sense of taste felt dulled. Like these, these things that in recovery, I feel like I'm experiencing so much. They would talk about stuff like that, that I had just not considered or someone had brought up or a couple of people had brought up ways in which body checking behaviors were sensual experiences for them. Um, Which was just something else that I hadn't thought of like, Oh, like, yeah, of course. Kind of like feeling your body for whatever, you know, makeup your body has um, was really very interesting. I was also surprised to find, I don't know why, but surprised to find that sometimes I felt like triggered by it. Um, sometimes the conversations I had to a little bit dissociate and like only pay enough attention to be able to keep the conversation going, um, rather than being really deep in it because I, it was too much for me. Um, and those are some things that I found, yeah, really interesting. And it was, yeah, I mean, you're asking people to talk about these really hard, of course they knew that's what they were going to be talking about, which helps. Um, and, and it was people who were generally interested in unpacking that stuff, but it was very um, trying to figure out how to make people feel comfortable. And I would send out a survey afterward about how it went and how people felt about it. And several people actually commented um. That I made them feel very comfortable, and that that made a big difference to them. And I really think that had to do with the part where I was just acting like myself instead of a scientist.
0: By the way, we we are human. I know that my my clients and they they love that I'm recovered, and 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 not for any reason other than it just makes me human. Like mm-hmm. I I'm not I'm not just a one dimensional therapeutic person that sits in a chair. Can we speak a little bit more about skin hunger, though? Going Mm. back to like touch, Mm. smell, look, you know, glances, because that is just essential that it can be. And I'm assuming, and I hate using that word, but or I know for myself, when I was in my eating disorder. It's very safe, which by the way, safety needs to be there in Mm -hmm. any sexual experience. And so talk a little bit more about skin hunger.
1: I love the phrase skin hunger. When I first heard it, it was just like, it felt really poetic to me. And I I kind of, um, yeah, like really grabbed onto it when I first learned it. And at this point, <laughs> I think we all really understand what skin hunger is because during the pandemic, I mean, the pandemic is still happening, but during in 2020, I think people suddenly had this collective experience of not being around other people and what that feels like, not being able to um, hug, not being able to make eye contact, um, and not being able to just sit in a room with a person and how lonely it is. It's lonely, even if you're able to talk to people on Zoom or on the phone or whatever, not having any quote unquote skin to skin, but I agree with what you're saying that like, even like eye contact, which is not physical touch necessarily, um, is an experience of intimacy, physical intimacy with another person and not having that really impacted people um, in ways that I think folks weren't expecting. Um, And I think added to this general kind of malaise or like depression that people were feeling at that time. Um, And skin hunger is so fascinating because another way to talk about it is touch nurturance, which often we only use to talk about infants. Um, we, We know or we generally tend to understand or have the instinct that babies need to be touched. That's how they get calm, that's how they even like burping a baby' <laughs> like you have to touch the baby in order for them to like have like a physical response that they need to have um and rubbing a back, you know like the, to put a baby to sleep, rocking like to have that experience um they give you when you give birth the baby <laughs> <laughs> you know, to hold it <laughs> so it's like it, we know that it's very very important um. For infants to experience touch, that doesn't change when you're an adult. You know, as you grow, you still need to be, t- and of course, different people have different levels of, of touch. Some touch can be unsafe. And so some people will have a different response to touch and wanting to respect that varied experience. But in general, people still need to be touched. Um, or a lot of the things that uh, the ways that we were touched as infants still feel relevant to us as adults, having your back rubbed to go to sleep, you know, that it's still irrelevant, like, though that's comforting. Um, even as an adult, if you're crying, you're sobbing, and someone's holding you, they will often rock. Like, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's so instinctual of a way to take care of other people. Um, and it's true of other social animals, also. So obviously, our, you know, cousins, um, apes, um, chimps, etc., also do a lot of touch. Um, the kind of like picking through fur for things um is touch. That's what it is. It's touch. Um, similarly, when people like rub your hair, play with your hair, it has a similar kind of feeling. My mom used to say, like, look for bugs in my hair when we were little to like <laughs> make us play with her hair. And there were never bugs. So I didn't, I don't know why I fell for it. I mean, that's that's so um such a beautiful way of like connecting the human experience to other social animal experience where it's like we actually are doing the exact same things um and touch um often in um other animals also has a um a relationship to how big your social group is there's like a relationship there and as humans having a large social group um is also protective that that is a way that we feel safe and protected so i think touch Touch is very interesting. Um, and touch also has a lot to do with body image, surprisingly, particularly in young kids, like in toddlers, when, you know, you're learning, um, object permanence that like touch plays a role in their understanding of, um, my body versus your body. Uh, and that there's a separation between those things and that, um, yeah that you don't have to like be here in order for you to still exist i don't have to see myself like in a mirror you know to know that i exist um it's a really fascinating it's a really fascinating relationship i think touch and our own development of a relationship to our body and other people's bodies
0: which also is so uh counterintuitive to what happens when we're in eating disorder we shy away mm-hmm. from touch we shy away from community we shy away from support all this stuff and so what here's the million dollar question yeah. what are some words of like what's some guidance so I'm imagining there's there's people sitting listening to this right now thinking okay I agree I resonate yep 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 now what though what mm-hmm. are where do, where do they go from here?
1: <sighs> so I think understanding our relationship to our body and understanding our relationship to touch is, is big. And I think that working with someone, whether it's a therapist or a coach or another kind of professional that can help kind of guide you through that process that you can have a long-term relationship with. I think understanding that the work is big. It's very, very big. Um, I started over the past couple of years uh, looking into my attachment style, for example, and something that I <laughs> sit with a lot is I'm like, this has been my whole life. This has this is something that I developed in infancy that is, has now gone on for my whole life. It's gonna take the rest of my life to unlearn it and I probably won't ever get there actually. And I think that when we accept that a lot of this work is long-term work, I think that's important. I think thinking about touch with um, ourselves and other people as um, something that you can take baby steps around. So there's this thing, this concept um, within sex therapy called senseate Focus, which is a master's in Johnson um, Kind of creation. Sensate focus is like a process of touch that's like non sexual and then like moving into sexual touch over time, um, like particularly partnered. There's also like reconnecting with your own body, uh, which is so hard when you experience any kind of dissociation from your body. It's really, really hard to try to get back into your body. What does it feel like to be in your body? Some people have found, some research shows that as like adjunctive, um, kind of like supportive therapies or processes, um, massage, yoga, meditation, that those things can be really helpful in terms of reconnecting to your body, feeling your body, taking a bath, taking a shower, t- like um, smelling things. It's, it's it's really, how do you reconnect? Like, what does it feel like to be in your body? Was does hot versus cold feel like to your body? What do, what smells you like and not like? What Go to a candle store and just smell candles. What candles am I more like interested in and attract to? Um, that is an experience that you're having in your body. Obviously food um, is another experience that we have in our bodies. And that might be too far, like that the idea of kind of like mindful eating might feel scary, but that's another experience. What is the texture of this food? What is the taste? What are the different... Um, notes of taste that I can uh notice um, I think just getting into our thinking about our five senses music, things that we like to listen to, going for a walk in the woods or um, moving through the woods, and if that's accessible or any place, and just thinking about what do I see, what do I hear, what do I smell what what feels like it's taking up a lot of space for me. Um, I did that once and was really surprised that it was like my um, hearing that was the most prominent. I thought it would be like my seeing, but it wasn't. Um, And just having sensual experiences in your body without the pressure of them having to be sexual experiences, I think can help us slowly get back into a relationship with our body that starts to feel safe and fun and something we want to explore versus something that feels scary.
0: Yeah. Can you share a little bit about what your coaching is like and and how you work with, with, with couples or, you know, whatever, however they define, whether it's polyamorous or mm-hmm. whatnot. So can you share a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, I mostly work with individual people that are interested in working on some aspect of how they show up relationally. So, um, it's coaching is interesting because it's different from therapy in a lot of ways. And one of the ways that it's different is it's very future oriented and goal oriented. So it's very much, where are you now? Where do you want to be? How do we get there? What are the obstacles? Um, what are those obstacles are practical, which of them are emotional, which of those obstacles are immovable. Then how do we practice acceptance about the immovable obstacles? Um, how do we take small steps toward um, either processing or changing what some of those obstacles are. Uh, overarchingly, the way that I think about the work is mostly around our values. So what um, what are your kind of social or political values? What are the ways that you're not living them? Because that's, spoiler alert, all of us. Um, and how can we get in more alignment? And so a lot of the people that I work with um, with body image or eating disorder histories or current concerns, what their values-based thing is that they're coming with is usually, um, I am pro fat, for example, but I struggle with it myself. I struggle with being fat myself, or I struggle with having an eating disorder, um, or the relationship that I have to my body is impacting my sexual relationship or my partner, the way my partner talks about my body is impacting my ability to show up sexually. So sometimes how do we have a conversation with our partner? How do we work on that? You know, what, um, so it's very much, yeah. What are the small things that we can do week to week to start building us up to a place where we're starting to make movement toward where we want to be. Um, And that's, it's really like powerful work to do. Um, I have a coach myself and I, well, I I moved so I can't work with my therapist anymore. But I was working with a therapist um and I just found like doing both at the same time so useful and that they really offered two different things to me. And the thing about coaching that I like is it's just so specific. It's like very specific to a to a goal. Um and that is I think a uh, just a really powerful way to make movement.
0: You know and again, Melissa, forgive me. I feel like I'm going all over the place, but I'm just <laughs> having so much fun with this interview. And I this is this is gonna sound so juvenile, but I, I'm ready. I'm I'm sitting here and I'm listening to you like talk about all this stuff. And uh what 20 years ago when I was in graduate school, I remember I took a human sexuality course. And the professor got up and she's like, I'm a sex therapist. And I was very immature at the time, and so were a lot of my classmates, and we we're all like, ee, like giggling, like, "Oh, what does a sex therapist do? Do you just do sex all the time?" Like, now, gratefully, I am so aware of how encompassing this entire study is, the research, everything about sex and sexuality. Do you get met with people like do Do people not understand? <laughs> What you do, and are they just like, and I'm so sorry, I'm asking this for my own personal curiosity. This has nothing to do
1: (laughs) a thousand percent. I don't think my mom could tell you like what I do or what my like degree is in. I, you know, and she should be someone who understands um, my life, (laughs) you know, and what I'm doing. Oh my gosh, yeah, people really don't. A lot of times, what I get is, um, oh, like you're you study sex, like, what is there to know? And I'm like, that's um to me that's concerning, <laughs> you know like um or that's that I think is probably what I get the most what is what is there to know? There's people who don't understand just social science in general and just really struggle with what is the point of studying a social science as if sex isn't also this is you know similar to psychology, also a biological um experience that like you need to understand also, but I think that um, yeah. I think it's definitely something that people understand more. I think that, you know, there's more openness around talking about sex. Um, There's more of an understanding about different um, sexual identities, gender identities, things that, you know, weren't necessarily true 20 years ago Um, that I think people start to understand uh, a bit more, even I think an understanding more of therapy um, and other self-development work where people are starting to more understand that um, there's different, like modalities, there's different specialties and that that matters. I think there's more of an understanding about trauma now. I think that's very much more kind of in the cultural vernacular that I think people can understand the concept of having to work through sexual trauma um, or how trauma could impact our relationships. With ourselves and other people. So I think there's more of an understanding, but people tend to think that I know things I don't know. Like sometimes people will ask me about, oh, here are some symptoms that I have. Does this sound like an STI to you? And I'm like, I'm, I'm not a medical doctor. Like, I, my advice to you would be to see a doctor. <laughs> you know, like I can't, I can't diagnose you by just hearing what you're saying to me. Um, and so I think, you know, stuff like that, sometimes people don't quite grasp um what you do know or don't know or can and cannot do but yeah i feel like yeah it's usually it's usually people just being like i don't get it why is that important you know um <laughs>
0: so it's so interesting do you think people understand have an understanding of how much politics plays into sex sexuality sensuality no that's what I thought. I just.
1: <laughs> Absolutely not. And it's, it's wild to me. It's, it's interesting that, you know, you say this because politics, I think, is a word people misunderstand. I think when people think politics, they think governmental electoral politics. That is what they think of. They think of the government. The government already has a gigantic impact on sexuality, whether we want to talk about um, birth control, abortion whether we wanna talk about the AIDS crisis. I mean, like the government has a huge role in what is happening. Don't say gay stuff, like, tra- like anti-trans bills. Like they have a huge impact um, on our relationship to sexuality and how we understand sexuality. But when I say politics, I'm not even talking about the government. I don't even think about the government, like basically at all. <laughs> so to me, politics are our values. It's how we show up in the world. It's how we interact with other people. It's what we care about. It's the kinds of things we teach our kids. Like to me, that's what I mean when I say politics or what are our values Um, and where do they come from and how are they socialized and how do we push against some socialized values that we don't believe in? Um, And I think if you ask most people if like their values show up in their sexuality at all I think people would would kind of understand that more that we have values around sex. Um, I also think that people, which is normal, that we tend to be a little like egocentric about our values and believe that our values, everybody has them, that everybody shares whatever our values are. Um, And so actually a lot of the work that I've done as a sex educator is values clarification. (laughs) It's like, let's start there. What values do you hold? Um, And how are those values supportive and unsupportive to you and other people? But yeah. I don't think, yeah, my resounding no. Do I think people think about how politics apply to sexuality? Absolutely not.
0: I I, I assumed, but again, I, I <laughs> never want to make assumptions. So Melissa, I, I could go on and on. And I, first of all, I just want to say thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast and for the work that you've done and for publishing your dissertation. Thank you. It's wonderful. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that you'd like to share with listeners before we end? You know,
1: something that I think about a lot when I do something like a like a recovery or an eating disorder specific podcast, or sometimes I think about, oh, am I like really the right person for this? I feel like I'm so in a place in my life where like my experience with an eating disorder plays such a small role in my life at this point. But then I think about actually how powerful that is for people to know that like, that is actually a place that's possible that there is this place. And I don't think 10 years ago, I thought that I would be in a place where I could be like, I just don't think about it. I just don't think about it. You know, um, I had an experience recently where my partner, who's a therapist was telling me, um, he was saying something, well, I have this client who, um, basically was saying that like the client like equates, um, exercise with, like calories or something. And that my my response was like, wow, like I can't even imagine that. That's so sad. And then I was like, wait, actually I can't imagine that. (laughs) Like I was like, why? I like, I was just in such a different mindset that I was just like, I can't even imagine equating movement with food anymore. You know, and just feeling like that is, I actually think that's really important for anyone who's like in a place where it feels like even like the recovery process is such a big part of their identity that you might actually get to a place someday in your life where you don't even think
0: about it. I can't agree with that sentiment, sentiment, excuse me, everyone, more. Um, I I know for myself, I always thought others, everybody else can recover. I'm just like, I, I'm that one unique person. It's it. I'm not kidding you. And I have to say this, I don't think I've ever shared this on the show. I literally thought recovery would not quote unquote look good on me. Like, I don't even know exactly if I was talking the physical part of recovery, the emotional part, the confidence that I would have, you know, was wanting when I walked down the street. I just didn't think it was mine to have. Mm. And I never thought it was possible. And I'm really grateful that you ended with that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think that 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 is just a really beautiful, wonderful thing to know that that's possible in the world.
0: Melissa, again, from the bottom of my heart, thank you for being part of the show.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me.
0: All right, everyone. That does it for another episode of Recovery Bites. I look forward to speaking with each and every one of you next week. Take care and stay safe. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Recovery Bites. Be sure to visit recoverybitespodcast.com To join the conversation, access show notes, listen to past episodes, and more. You can also find us by searching for Recovery Bites on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and major podcast streaming players. For weekly episode releases, you can follow us at at Pod on Instagram. If you're interested in becoming a guest on the show or to submit a guest request, please visit karenlewisedc.com forward slash podcast signup to begin the process. I'd also like to send out a heartfelt thank you to my producer, Jen Galvin. It is unbelievable the magic she does behind the scenes. All right, everyone. See you next week for another Recovery Bite. Thanks for listening.